0: i This morning I would like to bring to you a historical message and this is part one. Next week will be part two. You'll get uh, the gist of it as we go along. So it's not going to be exegetical. Uh, recently, I, well a few months ago, I brought a historical message on the life of David Livingstone. But this morning uh, the topic is our Christian heritage and Psalm 116 verse 12 is, is our main verse. For some years now, uh, this s- next Sunday, not this Sunday, but we're a well, week early, but anyway, you'll get the gist of it, like I said. It's, it's called National Christian Heritage Sunday, which takes place on the first Sunday of February to, to coincide as much as possible to the actual anniversary date of the 3rd of February, 1788. On that day was the first known preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ on Australian soil. And it was the first Sunday after the landing of the first fleet on Sydney Cove on the 26th of January, 1788. So today is a time to reflect on our Christian foundations and recognise and give thanks for the hand of God in shaping Australia. So this morning I would like to take a a historical and spiritual journey to some 230, 232 years ago, just yesterday. Now the late 17th century was a time of hurried worldwide expansion and exploration. There were many European nations seeking to colonize the world and carve up for themselves vast areas that remained as yet unconquered by the West. There was a lot of colonization happening in South America, in Africa, in Asia. So you had ships and navies owned by the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch who traveled the high seas. And of course, England had the best navy, and it was a rising empire. This is despite the fact that they had just been kicked out of North America after losing the the War of Independence in 1783. Now England had a problem. it had to look elsewhere to send their convicts and empty their jails, which were always getting fuller. They were good people. Anyway... But there was, there, there is another dimension to all of this. The late 1700s was also the back end of a spiritual revival in England that had a real impact, not just in England, but in the rest of the world. There was a zest for the proclamation and evangelism and people responded in their hundreds and thousands. The best-known preachers during this time were John Wesley and George Whitfield. It was a time of revival. People people leaving their life of sin and coming to God and understanding God's grace. Under God's providence, this revival had a, a tremendous influence for the good in so many areas of society. For example, it was by the grace of God that England was spared a revolution against the monarchy and against the church like which happened in France in 1789. In England, there was a small group of clergy and laymen who called themselves the Eclectic Society. Eclectic means a thinker who reconciles opinions belonging to different schools of thought. Amongst them was the great social reformer William Wilberforce, a Christian, a committed Christian who eventually, after many years of trying, brought about in Parliament the abolition of the African slave trade in 1807. He was bringing a bill every year for 20 years until finally, just before his death, he was passed. Another who belonged to that group was the Reverend John Newton, the former slave captain, slave ship captain, now a preacher, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. These men did not simply want to have an impact in their own land, but they wanted... England to be the base to to send missionaries and and preachers and the gospel to go throughout the world. Especially those where, those countries that were being colonised by Western civilisation. So as you can imagine there was a growing excitement in England after the discoveries of of Australia by Captain James Cook in, in 1770. and and there was already talk about sending an expedition to Botany Bay. The news that a colony was going to be established fired the imagination of of many people. As things were finalised, it is interesting that there was no plan to send any religious thought or, or to send a chaplain to this new colony. But this group called the Eclectic Society and more specifically William Wilberforce, who was a close friend of then Prime Minister William Pitt, appointed a 31-year-old preacher, a reverend Richard Johnson, as chaplain to the settlement. Through prayers and much reflection, there was a positive action that was the result of this And the action of these few made a real difference in the destiny of the new colony, which is Australia. So we should really be thankful that God used such men to to have a vision, to to plan, and to lay a spiritual foundation of this country that we call Australia. Australia, of, of course, wasn't the name at the time. A little bit about Richard Johnson. Richard Johnson studied for the ministry at Cambridge and was ordained in 1783 into the Anglican Church. The great thing is that, here is that he was a man who, rather than being stuck with a stale liturgical high church tradition, was heavily influenced by sound evangelical preachers. His first appointment was a rural parish in Hampshire. He was a, before he went into the ministry, he was he was a farmer, before he went into study. He grew up in a farm, so he was very much a hands-on type of person who spent some time farming before being ordained for the ministry. This was, of course, to prove very useful when he came to New South Wales. He was married to Mary Mary Burton a month after his appointment after a month after his appointment as chaplain to the new colony. And uh, just five months before the first fleet would sail to the distant land. In his memoirs, Richard Johnson describes the doubts and the fears that overcame him when When he was first approached for the job as a chaplain to the new colony. And this is what he wrote, and I quote On the 30th of September 1786, I received a letter from a friend informing me that a colony was going to be established in New Holland or New Zealand. Australia was known as New Holland and that a chaplain was wanted and he, and he could secure me the appointment. He continues, For several days both my sleep and appetite were taken away. The idea of leaving my parents, relations, friends, the dangers of the sea, the place to which we were going, to the very ends of the earth, Those ideas so impressed my mind with fear and terror that I almost resolved to decline the offer. But then on the other hand, when I consider the necessity of some person going, going out, the prospect of being made useful in the reformation of those poor and abandoned people, the power and promises of God to protect me, these considerations removed all my fears and induce me to enter upon this hazardous expedition. End of quote. So as we can see, he was no starry-eyed idealist. He was, he was a realist. He knew life would be difficult in the colony, yet he came anyway because he was certain of God's calling upon his life. The first fleet, made up of 11 ships, left in May 1787 with just over 1,000 people from Portsmouth in England. Among them were the governor, Captain Arthur Phillip, 20 officials and their servants, 213 marines with some wives and children and more than 750 convicts. And of course one chaplain and his wife, Richard, and Mary Johnson on board. Nowadays, it takes, you can get to England in what? Less than than a day, right? 24 hours by flight with stopovers and all of that, You can get there. The fleet took 36 weeks to reach Botany Bay. One of their stops was Rio de Janeiro in Brazil where Johnson managed to pick up orange and lemon seeds which he would later use to plant his orchard in the new colony. Providentially they arrived just four days before two French frigates commanded by La Perouse would also turn up in Botany Bay, therefore the name. And after a few more days, uh, the whole fleet would transfer to to the site of the new colony to Farm Cove in Port Jackson in January 26. Within a week after settling at Sydney Cove for the first known Christian service on Australian soil, everybody was there. The service was held on a grassy hill underneath a great tree as there were no known buildings at all. Richard Johnson's text for his message was Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? It's a great verse, isn't it? After travelling for 36 months, God's mercy was upon him, they turn up in a place, there was nothing there and the challenges ahead, how will, how will, the, how, how will it all go? How, what will be the reaction of the Aborigines? These words were delivered as an act of thanks for the journey and for the task ahead, the great challenge that was ahead. If only, if only more Australians would realise how blessed we are, and it's not because of luck, it's not the lucky country, but because of God's blessing upon this great land. We are here in this rich land by the mercy and the goodness of God. It is a land where the gospel of Jesus Christ can still be freely preached as we are doing now and we can still gather together for the worship and praise of God. It would take another five months before, he, before Richard was able to build a house for his wife in a, in a little cottage that was built from cabbage tree palms and thatch rushes. By the end of 1788, he was growing enough vegetables for his own needs. He was given 400 acres in what is now the suburb of Glebe. 400 acres. His farming expertise came in handy because of his previous experience in farming. It came in really handy because, and he was known as the best farmer in Sydney town. But much more, much more important than surviving and making a living, Richard Johnson's burning desire was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see men and women come to faith. He baptised, he married and buried. It was his task to be present with those who were executed and prayed with them on the gallows. Here is an interesting comment contained in a letter from Richard Johnson to a friend back in England at the end of 1788. He wrote, and I quote, I am yet obliged, I am yet obliged to be a field preacher. No church is yet begun of, and I am afraid scarcely thought of. Other things seem to be of greater notice and concern, and most would rather see a tavern, a playhouse, a brothel, anything sooner than a place for worship. That's how Roots goes. So he held services every Sunday in the open air, sometimes in a large store. By the end of seventeen ninety he had begun to hold regular services for the settlers of Parramatta. And the following year, he also began travelling to minister to the convict community in Tungabi. In 1792, he wrote and distributed a booklet to the inhabitants of the colony. As the colony was growing, more people were were coming. There was no no way that he could possibly go and see and visit everybody. So he wrote this booklet to, to set forth the gospel, what he believed, his convictions, to call upon men and women to repentance. And this is part of what he wrote and, and it gives us a good insight into what Johnson saw was his, his task and his message and especially a, a challenge to us as we hear this 232 years later. And I quote, I have told you again and again that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there is no coming to God with comfort, either in this world or in that which is to come, but to Him. He has told you Himself, and the Apostle assures you, that there is no other name under heaven given unto men whereby they can be saved. Look unto Him, and you shall be saved. If not, you must be damned. This is the plain truth, the express declaration of the Bible. Life and death are set before you. He continues, he said, To meet me then as your minister, your friend, and a well-wisher to your souls, to press these serious and weighty considerations upon your consciences once more. And I hope and believe that I have asserted nothing what can be proved by the highest authority, the word of the living God. They certainly deserve your closest and most careful attention since it is plain beyond a doubt that upon your knowledge or ignorance, your acceptance or rejection of this gospel, your everlasting happiness or misery must depend. He didn't pull any punches, did he? just told it pretty straight the, the clear it was this clear preaching of the gospel by Johnson which soon brought him into conflict with the governor Arthur Phillip Philip had you see had, had no time for such evangelical stuff and asked Johnson to begin with normal subjects Like many today, like most today, the governor was happy to use religion as a means to an end. It was okay to have a chaplain as long as he didn't take things too seriously. But as we just read, Johnson took the gospel very seriously. There are many today who see the church as nothing more than some kind of stabilising moral or social influence to give social services. They want us to be in the community helping people, cleaning them up and making them into good citizens. But when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that demands a, a personal response and faith, then that's just going too far. That's a different matter. You can't tell me the way I'm to live or what I believe. And from the time of the early church to this day, this has always led to conflict, to persecution, because of the unwillingness of those pastors and leaders and and preachers to, to compromise on the true gospel. When, when due to ill health, Captain Arthur Philip returned to England in December 1792, Major Francis Grose assumed control as acting governor. And Grose hated Johnson and the gospel that he preached. If you thought Philip was bad, Grose was worse. And, and, And he set out to make life as hard as possible for the chaplain. He told him that church services were to be held at 6am, 6am in the morning and, and they were to be no longer than 45 minutes and a lot of you here are saying, yes, no longer than 45 minutes. As well, soldiers and convicts were openly encouraged, get this, to treat him with contempt insulting him and sometimes throwing stones at him as he, as he walked down the road. Finally, in 1793, after continued government inaction on the construction of a promised church building, Mr Johnson built a church largely with his own hands. It was, uh, it was big enough to accommodate 500 people and it opened on the 25th of August, 1793. And and even though the the church attendance was supposed to be compulsory as per the instructions from England, it was supposed to be compulsory for all the marines and convicts, on, on Christmas Day, only 30 to 40 people attended, history tells us. More than being a church... This church also served as a school which had 150 students. If you go to the corner of Bly and Hunter Streets, there is a a plaque there to remember the first church building that was built in Australia. Unfortunately, just five years later, a suspicious fire destroyed the first church building in 1798. The Johnsons decided to return to England due to ill health. And in 1800, um, he returned to England in 1800, where he recovered and he resumed ministry over there. So Richard Johnson and his wife Mary, we can call them the pioneers of education in New South Wales and indeed in Australia. Because they were the first ones to offer education to children, whether they belonged to convicts or freemen. By March 1792, he had, a, he had set up schools in Sydney, in Parramatta, and on Norfolk Island. And interesting, isn't it, that even though the Christians were the pioneers in education, that today they are trying to to restrict scripture teaching in the schools or not have them at all. The Johnsons were also responsible for the setting up of a fund to care for orphans. So when the second fleet, by the time that the second fleet arrived in 1790, there were hundreds of sick and dying convicts on board and Johnson went on board on board the ships to to care for those who were in need. In another area, Richard and his wife had a special desire to befriend the Aborigines. And unfortunately, it's unfortunate, we have to recognise that many Aborigines were being dispossessed of their land by the white settlers. And the Johnsons did a very symbolic thing, something that is, I think, overlooked by modern historians that when their first daughter was born in 1792, they gave her the Aboriginal name Milbar in honour of the Aborigines. So this morning, it's good to reflect on these words. I want to continue from the booklet that he wrote to the people of their land. And this is what he said to them. And I quote... This will be my daily prayer to God for you. I shall pray for your eternal salvation, for your present welfare, for the preservation, peace and prosperity of this colony and especially for the more abundant and manifest success of the Redeemer's cause and kingdom and for the effusion and outpouring of his Holy Spirit not only here but on every part of this globe. Longing, hoping and waiting for the dawn of that happy day when the heathen shall be given to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus for his inheritance and the uttermost of the earth for his possession and when all the ends of the earth shall see, believe and rejoice in the salvation of our God. I am your affectionate friend and servant, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Richard Johnson. It's good, isn't it, to to remember, to reflect, and to give thanks to God for men like him, for his wife, and for those that followed and continue to spread the gospel in this great Southland of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll do part two of this uh, tremendous history that we share. Amen.